we're just saying a number of truths that when you see them all together um, bring such comfort and I think also such desire for the Lord. So as we sing, Come Thou Fount, we confessed that we're prone to wander. We confess that, we feel in our hearts that, that left to ourselves, we would not continue on. But then as we heard from Romans 8, the love of Christ will hold on to us. That though we're prone to wander, He's not going to let us go. And we say, and He will hold me fast and and just confess together just our our great comfort and our salvation is that is that it's not up to us, it's up to Christ, and He has done it all. And and He has paid for our sins on the cross. Justice has been satisfied, so, so no sin we ever commit will will be something that He says, that's enough, I can't hold on to any longer, because He paid for it all, and He will hold us fast because of His love. And because of all that, we, we have this great comfort and then this great confidence to come to Him and say, we want to grow, and we want to change, and... We, we want you to work in us. Listen to how Psalm 119 ends. I, I, want, I want to pray this prayer as our prayer for illumination today. This is the end of Psalm 119, a, a, a long psalm of praise for God's word and confession of need for God's grace. And, and listen to how it ends. This is our prayer this morning for illumination. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Lord, that is our confession and it is our prayer. We have gone astray. Not one of us this morning comes before your word without having gone astray in some area of our lives and our hearts. We all come as straying, wandering sheep who need you to seek us. Lord, we we, we give you this time and pray that you would seek us out. Lord, that you would be gracious to us, that you would work in us according to your word, according to your mercy, according to your promise. We don't bring anything to the table right now, Lord. We, we come only as needy sheep who recognize our needy, neediness to some extent and, and pray, Lord, that you would seek us according to your word during this time. Lord, unfold your word to our hearts. Open up our hearts to your grace. As we say, cause your word to bear fruit in us. For your glory, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Um, anyone is here right now that missed our family meeting, I just want to uh, point out a few things about that before we look at our sermon today. Uh, on the back table in the sound booth, there's two pieces of paper. One is for you and one is for us. Uh, the first one is just a recap of what we talked about in our family meeting, and it gives a, uh, a brief overview of the things we will be doing this semester. And then this, that's the wrong paper. There's also a budget on the giving table. It's another, oh, all right, turn it around. Here's the other paper. Uh, it's got a bunch of questions, yes or no, different ways that you can serve this semester. Uh, also, a few ways that you can serve at our VBS in a few weeks on that. And so uh, we want everyone to get one of those papers, fill it out, yes or no to all those questions, and that way we can plug you into serving this fall as we approach our fall semester. You can open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Jonah. Chapter 4, we are in our final message of our series, Runaway Prophet, Rescuing God. This is um, going to be the last text today. And, uh, and as you turn to Jonah chapter 4, uh, I wanted to ask, has anyone here ever seen the How It Should Have Ended videos? Anyone ever seen those, How It Should Have Ended? They are very funny videos. I, I don't necessarily want to condone everything in them because I don't remember everything in them, but... But they are essentially videos where these, these people take famous movies that we all love and tell us how it should have ended. And usually how it should have ended would have cut the movie down to about five minutes and it would have been over. And, uh, and, and so that's what those, those videos are. And, and this morning, before we look at Jonah chapter 4, I want to give you a, a how it should have ended to the book of Jonah. And to do that, I want to use um, my other translation that I brought with me today, Jonah and the Whale. I found this in my kids' stuff. I don't know where it came from. This person obviously did not like the way Jonah actually ends. And so just to help us recap this book and also to show us this alternate, and I'm just going to read this to us this morning, Jonah and the Whale. Can I see the pictures? Long ago, there lived a man named Jonah. The Lord told him to go to the city of Nineveh and help the people to become good and learn to love and worship the Lord. Jonah was afraid to go to Nineveh, so he fled to the port of Joppa and sailed on a ship to the far-off city of Tarshish. The Lord sent a great storm unto the sea. The wind and waves threatened to sink the ship. The sailors drew lots to discover who had caused their bad luck. Jonah confessed that he had fled from the Lord He said, throw me into the sea, and the storm will stop. They threw Jonah into the sea, and it grew calm. The Lord sent a great fish to swallow Jonah. He was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. He prayed for forgiveness and promised to obey the Lord. The great fish spit Jonah onto dry land. He went to do as the Lord had commanded. The people gave up their evil ways and worshipped the Lord. And he was happy. The end. That's how Jonah should have ended. Whoever wrote that understood this is how Jonah should have ended. They really wished that's how Jonah did end. But that's not how Jonah ends. Let's look at how Jonah actually ends. Jonah chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. 
God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So Jonah actually ends right there. It's a admittedly enigmatic chapter. It's just somewhat mysterious. It is, it is something that requires us to think about and search out. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to try to think through this story and, and why does this book end this way and, and what is God wanting us to take away from this book. And so we're going to walk through this text and, and what we're going to see is that you can really walk through it by looking at three sections that each end in a question. Three sections of this chapter that each end with a question from the Lord and a answer from Jonah. And so first, let's look at the first section, starting in chapter 3, verse 10, and going through verse 5 again. Uh, and we, we, see, we see what God did when he saw what Nineveh did. Remember, last week we saw Nineveh heard the message of God, which was 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what did they do? They repented. They, they mourned their sin. They called a fast. They put on sackcloth. They cried out to the Lord. They even covered their cows with sackcloth. And God saw what they did. He saw their commitment to turn from evil, their commitment to seek Him, and He relented from disaster. But Jonah saw what God did. Jonah saw God relenting, and he was angry. He wasn't just a little upset. He was exceedingly displeased. He was very, very upset by this. And we, we asked last week, why, Jonah? Why are you so upset? And, and, and we see what he says here in verses 2 and 3. Jonah prays to the Lord, and he says, This is exactly what I said was going to happen. Lord, this is what I told you would happen if I went to Nineveh. 
This is why I fled from Nineveh and went to Tarshish, because I knew that you would be gracious. I knew that you would forgive them. I knew that you would relent from disaster. That's why I fled. You know, growing up, I always heard, we just read it in that story, that Jonah fled because he was afraid the Ninevites would kill him. Is that why Jonah fled? No, Jonah fled because he was so confident that they would repent. Jonah fled because he was so confident that God would save them, that he would be successful. And he did not want to be successful. He did not want Nineveh to repent and God to relent. These should be some familiar words to us. He he turns to God and he says, this is how I knew this would happen. Because I know who you are, God. I know that you are a gracious God. I know that you are a merciful God. I know that you're slow to anger. I know you abound in steadfast love and relent from disaster. I knew this was going to happen because I knew that you are a rescuing God. So now just take my life and let me die. That's what Jonah says. Now, you remember, if you were here a few months ago, we did our Foundations and Pillars series, and our first foundation was the glory of God, and we looked at Exodus 34. And what did God reveal to Moses in Exodus 34? He revealed the name of the Lord. And he came before Moses and he proclaimed his glory and he said, this is my glory, this is who I am, the Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and full of steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and not leaving the guilty unpunished. That's the glory of God that we saw. This is who God is and it is glorious and it's why we worship him. But in this moment, Jonah takes that that revelation from God, which Israel often praised him for, and he says to God, I knew you were like this, and I hate that about you. I, I hate that you were gracious to Nineveh. I hate that you relented from disaster. I'd rather die than live right now. It's jarring, isn't it? This is a prophet of God. On the one hand, it's helpful to finally understand why did Jonah flee? We we finally get the answer. He fled because he did not want Nineveh to repent. But at the same time, now we're left with a whole new series of questions. Why not? Why would you not want Nineveh to repent? Why would you not want God to be gracious to this people? Why would you not want to see them turn from their sin and turn to God? What's going on, Jonah? You know... The text doesn't tell us the answer to that question. There, there are some theories as to why Jonah did not want to see Nineveh repent. But the text doesn't actually say, here's why I don't want them to be saved. And, and I think that this is because the Lord wants to search our hearts out a little bit deeper rather than just telling us Jonah was a racist or Jonah was a nationalist or whatever reasons that there might be the Lord, wants, the Lord wants us to see as we read this story what he's about to do in Jonah. Essentially, God's going to do heart surgery on Jonah in this chapter. Have you ever been angry and not known why? Like you're frustrated with somebody or you're frustrated in a situation. You can't, you can't even figure out why you feel the way you do. And what you need is for someone to peel back the layers for you. You need someone to help you understand what's going on in your own heart. You know you're sinning. You know you're frustrated. But you need someone to help you figure out what's going on underneath. That's what's happening with Jonah right now. He's angry. He's upset. And maybe he doesn't even know why. 
He just knows he does not want this to happen, and it happened, and now he just wants to die. Now, in verse 4, look at the Lord's question. This is the first question of three that we see the Lord ask Jonah in this text. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Just notice, church, the mercy of God in this moment. I mean, Jonah is literally saying to God, I hate who you are. I hate that you're a gracious God. I hate that you're a merciful God. And God responds to that with grace and with mercy. And instead of rebuking him, instead of, instead of judging him, instead of smiting him in that moment, he, he asks him a question and he begins to do heart surgery on Jonah. And he says, do you do well to be angry? He's asking him, do you have a right to be angry? Is there any legitimate reason for you to be angry, Jonah? He's forcing Jonah to think about what he's doing, think about what he's saying, think about his heart. Now Jonah's response to this question is implied in what he does in verse 5. He goes out of the city and he finds the best seat in the house to see the show. What he wants to see from this mountain outside the city is he wants to see Nineveh not last in their repentance and God judge them. Nineveh's repented, but he's hoping that it's short-lived, that it's superficial, and if he, just, if he just waits it out, then surely God will judge him. He's looking for a Sodom and Gomorrah type of event where, where fire rains down from the sky and Nineveh is destroyed, and then he can say to God, yes, I had a right to be angry. See? See? They, they, they didn't last. So, so his answer to the Lord's question, do you do well to be angry, is essentially, yes, I have a right. I believe that Nineveh deserves to be judged. I believe that I'm right and you're wrong, and we'll see. I'm going to go set up shop right here. I'm going to build a little tent for myself and, and, just, and just watch and see. Wait for them to turn the other way. Wait for them to turn back to their evil. And then you'll have to judge them. Then you'll have to admit that I was right, that they deserve to be judged. So that's where Jonah is. He's hard right now. He is, his heart is hard to the Lord. It's probably the hardest we've seen his heart in this whole book at this point. This leads to the second section, which leads to the second question in verses 6 through 9. What we're about to see in these verses is the Lord giving Jonah an object lesson. The Lord is going to give Jonah an object lesson that, in a sense, has nothing to do with what's going on in the story. But through this lesson, the Lord's going to show Jonah has everything to do with what's going on in his heart. And, and so look at verses 6 through 9 with me. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So, so God appoints a plant. The same way that he appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, now he appoints a plant to come up over Jonah. Apparently Jonah is kind of like me. He's not really good at building stuff because he built a tent and it wasn't really working for him. He still had the sun shining on him. And so, so God says, okay, Jonah is uncomfortable right now. He's, the sun's hidden down him. I'm going to appoint this plant to come up over him that it might be a shade over his head. I'm going to give Jonah a little shade while he sits there to watch Nineveh get destroyed. And it says he's doing this to save him from his discomfort. Again, look at the mercy of God in this moment. Does Jonah deserve this plant to come up over his head at all? 
as, as he rails against God, God is giving him shade to watch the city get destroyed, which isn't going to happen because he's wrong about this, but God gives him shade, and this word to save him from his discomfort, that word discomfort is a play on the words because it's the same word used in the book to translate evil. Translate the word evil. What's happening there is, is yes, this shade is saving Jonah from a little bit of discomfort, but God actually is going to use this plant to save Jonah from his evil. He's going to use this plant to save Jonah from what's going on in his heart. He's a rescuing God, and he's going to rescue Jonah in this moment. And so he appoints this plant to be a shade over his head. And how does Jonah respond to the plant? It says he was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Literally, he rejoiced with great joy. This is the happiest we see Jonah in the whole book of Jonah. He is so happy that he gets some shade through this plant to watch Nineveh hopefully get destroyed. He he is rejoicing. He's exulting. He's singing about this plant. He is excited that this plant is here. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. So God appoints the plant to give him shade, but then immediately he appoints a worm to kill the plant, and he appoints a scorching east wind to make the heat unbearable for Jonah so that he he feels like he's on the brink of death. He just wants to die. He is so miserable all of a sudden, going from having this shade from this plant to being as miserable as he can imagine. Say, just let me die, God. But God said to Jonah, here's the second question God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Notice it's the same question as he asked earlier about Nineveh, right? He said earlier, do you do well to be angry about my compassion to Nineveh? Now he says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Do you have any reason to be angry about this plant? Are you justified in your anger about this plant? And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Really don't know what's going on with Jonah here when he's saying this. Is, is he being sarcastic? Is he being, is he being serious? I, I don't really know if he's... What we see, obviously, is the foolishness of what's going on in his heart. I, I mean, he is, he is raging upset about this plant dying. And, and, he, and he sees it as perfectly justifiable. He says, yes, I'm angry enough to die. This leads to the third section, the final section of the book, where the Lord asks Jonah a final question in verses 10 and 11. First, the Lord says to Jonah, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. So, so first, the Lord finally is, is going to teach Jonah the object lesson of the plant here. He, he says, says you, you have compassion for this plant. You, you care about this plant. You, you have such strong feelings about this plant. And Jonah, let me remind you, you didn't do anything to get this plant to be there. You, you didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't work for it. The plant just came up as a gift. You did nothing for it. And also, let me remind you, Jonah, that this plant is just a plant. It came up in a night. It perished in a night. It's gone. It's just a plant. It doesn't mean anything, Jonah. How do you care so much for this plant? And then in verse 11, here's the question. Should I not pity Nineveh? 
You pity the plant. You have compassion for the plant. You, you care so much about this plant, which you had nothing to do with, which lasted for one whole day. Should I not pity Nineveh, a great city with 120,000 people who are going to live forever in heaven or in hell, They don't know their right hand from their left, which I think is just a way of saying that they are spiritually blind. They they do not know the difference between right and wrong. They're so blind to their sin. Should I not pity this city? Should I not pity this whole culture with all all their cattle and everything? Should I not pity Nineveh? And that's how the book ends. That's where it stops. We, we, we want an answer, but none is recorded for us. And at that point, we need to ask, why not? Why don't, we, why don't we hear what happened to Jonah? Now, many people believe that Jonah wrote the book of Jonah, that, that Jonah's response was to repent, that Jonah's response was finally to see it, and that he wrote this book later in his life to, to reflect back on that experience and to teach us. Maybe he did. That would be, that'd be awesome if he did. We don't know. We don't know how Jonah responded. We don't need to know how Jonah has responded. As far as this book is concerned, Jonah is long gone. He is dead. He lived thousands of years ago. But you know what? You and I are here today. And and this question ends open to us because God is not asking us, how did Jonah respond? God is saying, how do you respond? To every reader of this book, God is saying, how do you respond? And this is why the whole series I have said over and over again, we are Jonah. How do I know that? Because the book ends in a way that forces us to be Jonah. The book ends by putting us in Jonah's shoes and saying, you answer. How would you answer God's question? This chapter is not about Jonah. This book is not really about Jonah. It is about us. Now that, that again, is jarring. I mean, as we, as we walk through chapter 4, it is, it is hard for us to look at Jonah's behavior and, and, and have any compassion for him. We, I mean, we just look at that and say, man, this guy was awful. I mean, I mean, talking to God that way, resenting his glory and his grace, wanting to die, like, man, Jonah, you're such a bad guy. It's just it's jarring to us. And then, and then the book ends by saying, oh, no, that's you. That's you. And my first response is, no, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, I don't, I don't want whole cities to perish. I don't sit on hillsides to see judgment happen. I don't talk bad to God that way. I, I want to I push back and say, this isn't me. But, but the book is saying that it is me. God is saying, by the way that he inspired this book, that this is us. That, that, that somewhere we share with Jonah here. And this week, that has given me such a weight of concern and preparation for myself and for all of us to see to see that this is in some way us and that this could be us. And, and I don't want this to be me and I don't want this to be us. And we need to hear what God is saying. And I think the reason this chapter is so uh, mysterious and so maybe hard to, to understand at first is because if God just came out and said, here's what Jonah sinned, here, here was the reason, then, then we could just say, oh, okay, wow. But because, because God inspired a book, a chapter that, that makes us think about it, here, here's what's happening in making us think about it. He's making us think about our own hearts more. You see that? 
But by, by having to ask questions, what's going on here, God is actually causing us to say, what's going on in here? What's going on in my own heart? And so right now, just, just pray that all of us would have a, a, a spirit of humility, humility to say, even though we might not even see how we're like Jonah, God, you're saying we are, and so search out our hearts. Help us see. Help us hear what you want us to hear. There's a whole book of Scripture that was inspired by God for us to see how we are like Jonah. We need to hear the message this morning. So let's let's go a little deeper then. What do we see in Jonah? And the way that this object lesson works is, is that Jonah was not seeing truth about himself in relation to Nineveh. But what God does is he uses this plant to show Jonah through the plant and through his responses to the plant, what's actually happening in the bigger story. So, so what, we, what we see Jonah doing in response to the plant is actually what's happening to Jonah in response to what God is doing in Nineveh. And so what do we see with the plant? We see a spirit of entitlement. We see a spirit of entitlement. You know, the, the plant comes. Jonah is exceedingly happy about it. But when it dies, he is exceedingly angry about it, angry enough to die. And God says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Are you justified in your anger? And Jonah says, yes. Yes, I am justified in my anger. I have a right to be angry about this plant. Jonah believed he deserved the plant. Jonah believed he was entitled to the plant. He was angry that the plant died because he thought that he had a right to that plant. That's why God points out to him, Jonah, you didn't do anything to get that plant. You didn't toil for that plant. You didn't labor for that plant. You did nothing for that plant. What makes you think you deserve the plant? I heard a story when airplanes first got wireless internet about this, this businessman who got on the plane. He didn't know that there was going to be a chance to work while he's on the plane ride. He just is expecting to take a nap for a few hours, but he gets on, they say, New feature, wireless internet on the plane. And so he's excited. He, he gets on, gets, gets, gets his computer out, and he's beginning to type and work. And 10 minutes in, they, they, they say, we're sorry, the Wi-Fi has gone down, and we will not have wireless internet anymore on this flight. This guy just gets furious about it. Just, what, what do you mean? I need to work. And, and, and I, I don't know if the story is true or not, but I heard that he pitched a big fit, and they kicked him off the plane, didn't let him fly on the airline again. That's exactly what Jonah's doing, right? He didn't even know, he didn't even have this plan. It wasn't, it wasn't even in existence. The minute he gets it, he's excited. The minute it goes away, he's angry as can be because it's gone, even though he didn't do anything for it. It's, it's irrational. It's illogical. He, he's acting like something that is a gift is a right. He's acting like something that, that came to him undeserved, unmerited. is something that, that he actually is entitled to. It's a spirit of entitlement. And here's the thing. This is meant to teach Jonah that this same spirit of entitlement was the spirit that he had in relation to Nineveh and in relation to salvation. You remember back in chapter 2? Jonah was swallowed by the fish. At the end of chapter 2, he says in verses 8 and 9, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. In those few verses, we've seen that Jonah contrasts himself with, with those who worship idols. He says, idolaters forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I'm not like that. 
I don't forsake my hope of your steadfast love. I, I receive your steadfast love because I'm different than them. He, he, believed, he believed that he was entitled to the steadfast love of God because he didn't see how he was an idolater. He didn't see the idols in his heart. He believed that he was better than Nineveh. He saw Nineveh's actions. He saw their deeds. He saw their evil. And he believed that he was better than them. He believed that salvation was not a gift, that salvation was a right that he inherited. And this the spirit of entitlement is what causes Jonah to have this spirit of resentment toward Nineveh. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve your grace. I deserve your grace. I deserve the plant. And church, what we need to see now is that this same spirit of entitlement threatens us. Just think about it practically first. I mean, there are things in our lives, just like just like Jonah's plant, there are temporal things that we get really angry about. When something doesn't go our way, when a possession gets destroyed, when, when something happens that we don't like, we, we get furious about it, not, not realizing that it's, it's all a gift. We're not entitled to any of it. Church, we're not entitled to any good thing in our lives. None of it. Think of all the good things in your life. You don't deserve any of it. You don't have a right to any of it. Any of it. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. And ultimately, what's the greatest gift we have received? It's, it's our salvation. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't have a right to salvation. We didn't do anything to merit God's grace. That's what grace is. Paul says in Romans that if grace was based on works, it would no longer be grace. Grace in itself tells us we didn't do anything for it. We didn't deserve it. We had nothing to do with it, yet we treat it like a right. We treat both the things in our lives, all the plants in our lives, and the gift of God in Christ, we treat these things like we deserve them, like we're entitled to them, like somehow some, somehow we have a right to these things. We share the sin of Jonah. We have the spirit of entitlement. Well, there's another sin I think we see in Jonah, not just a spirit of entitlement, but a pattern of self-centeredness. We see a pattern of self-centeredness, and we see this in the plant. Think about what I said. When, when is Jonah happiest in the book of Jonah? When the plant comes up over his head. When he gets a little shade. Jonah loves Jonah. Jonah loves when Jonah feels comfortable. Jonah loves when things are going well for Jonah. Jonah loves his country. Jonah loves when Israel is prospering. Jonah loves when there's a plant giving shade over his head. Jonah loves when he's swallowed by a fish so he doesn't have to die. Jonah loves Jonah. Jonah lives for himself. He has a pattern of self-centeredness. He's rejoicing when the plant comes over his head. He's rejoicing when when the fish swallows him and he doesn't die, yet at the same time, he is angry when the plant dies, and he is angry when Nineveh repents. Think about Jonah's prayers in chapter 2 and chapter 4. In chapter 2, Jonah is saved, and he says, Thank you, Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In chapter 4, Nineveh is saved. He says, I hate that you're a gracious God. He loves himself. He hates the Ninevites. He, 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 he loves his own life going well, but he does not care about anyone else. 
and we too rejoice in and live for and are controlled by things that benefit ourselves. We can fall into patterns of self-centeredness. The, 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 the benefits we receive in this life make us so happy, don't they? And we just rejoice at the smallest little comforts that we get. And we rejoice every Sunday as we come and we sing of our salvation. We rejoice in this, but, I mean, do we, do we share the joy of the angels in heaven when a sinner repents? Do we share the joy of the father when his son comes home? Or are we like the older brother who resents when his younger brother comes home? That, that, that older brother is just like Jonah. He, he believes he's earned it, and he hates when someone else gets grace that he thinks he deserves. He's completely self-centered. He's completely entitled. We, we can be just like this. And I think there's a connection to be made between a spirit of entitlement and a pattern of self-centeredness. There's a connection there. Think about it. If something is a right that we've earned, then we're free to think only of ourselves with that thing. I mean, if I work hard to make money for my family and, and we get food from that, then, then it's because I worked. It's because I worked hard. Someone else doesn't have money on uh, food on their tables because they're not working hard. And, and, and I earned it and they didn't, and I don't really have an obligation to, to help them. They, they need to work hard. They need to do better. But, but, if, but if I am a poor beggar and someone comes and gives me a meal and gives my family a meal and then I recognize that there's another person here who is also a poor beggar who needs a meal, I am compelled to tell them there's a place you can go get a meal. I needed it. You need it. I know where to get it. But when we think we've earned it, then we're free to think of ourselves. But when we realize it's a gift that we didn't deserve, that we didn't earn, that someone else needs, that, that compels us to go to them. It compels us to stop living for ourselves. We, 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 we are changed by the grace we receive in the gift. And, and that, that gift that we receive, recognizing that we didn't do anything for it and we didn't deserve it, that, that then compels us to go to others. And this gets down to the very root of Jonah's problem. What is the very root issue for Jonah? I believe it's that Jonah did not understand grace. Jonah did not understand the grace of God. He failed to grasp that his salvation and that every good thing in his life was only and completely the gift of God. This led him to a spirit of entitlement. It led him to a pattern of self-centeredness. It led him to run away from God, and that led him to hate what God did in the lives of others who he thought did not deserve it and who he really didn't care about. He didn't grasp the grace of God. As believers, we can experience grace. We can, we can know grace, but we can fail to grasp that grace. Every time you you see that spirit of entitlement creeping into your heart. You know you're, you're forgetting grace. Every time you see that, that pattern of self-centeredness in your life, you, you can know you're forgetting grace. And what do you do when you realize, I'm forgetting grace? What do you need to do? You need to look to the place where, where, where self-centeredness and the place where 
a spirit of entitlement is destroyed. There, there, there is a place where these things get destroyed by the grace of God. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ. Only a personal experience of the grace of God through the cross of Christ can destroy a spirit of entitlement and a pattern of self-centeredness in our lives. And these things need to be destroyed, church. They, they need to be destroyed in us. What I want to do to show this is to illustrate this point with someone who is a lot like Jonah, the Apostle Paul. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul and how he was like Jonah. Before God saved Paul, he was a, a pious, self-righteous, entitled Jew who believed that he had earned his place with God through his behavior. And he, he hated and persecuted anyone who he felt did not earn that place with God. That's who Paul was. But Jesus appeared to Paul, and Paul realized that the message of the cross is true, and it transformed his life completely. Listen to a few things that Paul says. Think about his spirit of entitlement that he had as a Pharisee, his 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 thought that he deserved salvation, that he, he had earned his way. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is a guy who went from believing he was the foremost in righteousness to realizing through the cross, I'm the foremost in sinfulness. The cross did that to him. The message of grace did that to him. Paul realized Jesus had to die for me. That happened for me. That's my sins on the cross. I have no room for boasting. I have no room for entitlement. If that's what it took to save me, then I didn't do anything to deserve it. Then I don't contribute anything to this equation. I was the foremost of sinners. I was not righteous. I was the foremost of sinners. This is all a gift. This is all a gift of God's grace. Paul learned that by looking at the cross of Christ. And, and that, that lesson that he learns, realizing salvation is a gift, it's not something I earn, it's something that Christ earns for me because I am a sinner through and through, that led to a pattern not of self-centeredness, but a pattern of self-sacrifice in Paul's life. Listen now to what he said in Acts chapter 20. This is how Paul lived after the cross. No longer self-centered, no, no longer only wanting salvation to come to those who deserve it. But here's what he said. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I don't account my life of any value. My life means nothing to me anymore. The only thing that matters in my life is that I testify to the grace of God with it. That's all that matters because I didn't deserve any of it. I was a sinner through and through, but he came and he saved me. And now I want to live to tell others about this grace that I've received because of his love for me. 
The spirit of entitlement is gone and it's replaced with a spirit of gratitude and that gratitude compels him not to live for himself but to live for the glory of God as he spreads the gospel of grace to more and more people. How different from Jonah. This is the opposite of Jonah at this point. Jonah did not grasp the grace that he had received. He did not grasp that salvation was not something he deserved, was not something he earned, but it was completely a gift. But the cross of Christ changed Paul to realize, no, I didn't have anything to do with it. I thought I did, but I didn't. Jesus died for me. That's what it took for me. I don't contribute anything to this. It's all a gift. It's all grace. And if it's all grace, then I just want to give my life in gratitude to the Lord for what he has done for me. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 14-15 says this, that we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all have died, Jesus died for all, therefore all have died, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, so, so that verse is telling us that, that when we look at the love of Christ, and that on the cross, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you. He paid the penalty for your sins. That's what's happening on the cross. He's, he's paying for your sins, and he's showing you how sinful you are in that. This is what you need to be saved, is for him to die for you. And you realize that love that compelled him to do that, you, you say, I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I'm going to live for him who died for me. I'm going to live for his sake. I don't count my life as of any value to myself. It's not precious to me at all. It's not mine. It's a gift. It's all a gift. Your whole life is a gift. Well, this morning, are you more like Jonah or are you more like Paul? Just look at your life. Are, are, are you someone who, who clings to your plants? Are you someone who, who doesn't really care all that much about what happens to the lost, who doesn't really go to them, who doesn't... Who, who doesn't gladly go to share the gospel with them? Are you someone who has been so transformed by the gospel that you realize, my life doesn't matter to me anymore. It's all a gift anyways of God's grace. He's what matters to me. I'm going to live for His glory. The only way to be like that, the only way reason Paul was like that, is not because Paul is anything, but because Paul saw the cross of Christ and it transformed his life. The cross is devastating to any sense of entitlement. It destroys it by showing us, no, you didn't do anything. This is what it took to save you. And this happened because he loves you. This happened because he is a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving sins and iniquities and transgressions and maintaining his love to you forever and ever. So, what is our response to the Lord's question in verse 11? He says, should I not pity Nineveh? I think the only response we can have to the book of Jonah is to say, yes, you should. Yes, I should. And that I need to repent. Any other response means we're not really getting the church. Yes, God should pity Nineveh, yes, God has a right to show compassion on his created people who are lost in their sin, and he is a gracious God who reaches out, and yes, yes, and we should too. I said last week that chapter 3, which is all about repentance, is really just preparing us for this moment. 
Last week we looked at chapter 3, we looked at what true repentance is. Repentance involves humility before God, right? It, it, it involves saying, you're the king and we're not. It, it involves mourning over our sin. It, it involves more than just acknowledging it. It, it. it involves being broken over it before him, broken heartedness before the Lord. It, it involves taking time to focus ourselves on, on the matter at hand more than anything else in our lives, praying to God with all our hearts for help and for forgiveness, committing to walk a new direction and believing that he is a gracious God who forgives our sin. This is what repentance is. And we need to repent this morning. I need to repent this morning. We need to repent this morning. And so three ways that we need to repent, three applications for the book of Jonah. First, consider the gift of your salvation and repent of a spirit of entitlement. Consider the gift of your salvation and repent of a spirit of entitlement. Church, do we understand what God has given us? You know, you know what Paul said in another letter? He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We can't say enough about it. God has, has given us the gift of life with him in glory that goes forever and ever with perfect and increasing joy in his presence forever and ever when what we deserved was eternal judgment and suffering and pain forever and ever for rejecting this God. This is what God has done for us, and we cannot say enough about it. And guess what? We didn't have anything to do with it. It was completely a gift. We, we weren't smart enough. We weren't good enough. We weren't, we weren't wise enough. We weren't born into the right family. It was not about anything with us. It was all His grace to us. It's a gift. Consider that gift and then repent and turn from any sphere of entitlement that you have. Nothing in your life is earned. Nothing is deserved. It's all a gift. Your whole life is a gift. Your salvation is a gift. Thank the Lord for that and recognize that and turn from that spirit of entitlement. Second, consider the need of the lost and repent of patterns of self-centeredness. Consider the need of the lost and repent of patterns of self-centeredness. I don't know if we think about the need of the lost enough, and what I'm not sure we think about enough is that their need was our need. Not just that they're needy, but it's that that, that was us. What, what was the need? The need was we were dead in our sin. We could do nothing about it. And if God didn't intervene, we would have experienced eternal judgment for our sin. This is the need of the lost. They need salvation. They need eternal hope. Without God's grace intervening in their lives, they will perish just like we would have perished without God's grace in our lives. And yet we live so often for ourselves. We care so much about ourselves. We structure our lives in a way that is oriented around ourselves. We have patterns of self-centeredness in our lives. And at the end of your life, what's going to matter? The plant's going to come up in a day, it's going to perish in a day, and it's going to be dead. But these people will live forever and ever. So why are we living for ourselves? Why aren't we giving our all? 
are all in this life to make the gospel known. Why, why don't we pursue patterns in our lives where we are interacting with the lost more and have more opportunity to know them and have, have more chance to tell them? And, and why aren't we giving more to mission? Why aren't we praying more for missionaries who want to go to unreached people groups to, to help those who are going to die without Christ to know Him? Let's consider the needs of the lost, consider that that was us too, and then repent of patterns of self-centeredness. Like Paul said, I don't, I don't count my life as of any value or as precious to myself. I just want to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then finally, church, this, you know, it's interesting. Jonah, I've said over and over again, this book's not about Nineveh, it's about Jonah. This book's not about God's mission to Nineveh, it's about God's mission to Jonah. But at the same time, it's, it's really about God's mission to Nineveh. Because what did God want? God wanted Jonah to share his heart for Nineveh. What was God rescuing Jonah from? God was rescuing Jonah from a heart that was not in line with his own heart. That's what God was rescuing Jonah from. And it's interesting, God didn't just want Jonah to obey, because he did that, didn't he? I mean, Jonah obeyed, Jonah went, he preached the message, that wasn't enough. God didn't just want his obedience, God wanted Jonah to share his heart for Nineveh. God wanted Jonah to, to have the same heartbeat for the lost that he has for the lost. And so it's not enough for us just to, just to fulfill the requirement to go share the gospel, just to obey the command on an external level. God is saying, don't you feel what I feel? Because what God wants is for us to know the joy that he knows when someone repents. Think about it. The father in the prodigal son story was not just, was not just stoic when his son came home. He rejoiced when his son came home. He knew the joy of seeing a sinner repent. And God wants us not just to see sinners repent, but he wants us to know the joy of seeing sinners repent. And that's for our good, church. That's for you and me. And so, finally, consider the call of Christ to go and make disciples and repent of a heart that doesn't want what he wants. Repent of a heart that runs the other way. Confess that to him. We don't need to hide that from the Lord. We can say, Lord, I don't feel what you feel, but I know that's wrong, and I pray you would help me and forgive me and change me. Help me to know what you've done for me more. Help me to know your grace more so that I, I have the heart that you have for the lost. But, but church, Christ has called us to go and make disciples. This is the commission he has given to the church. This is the commission he has given to each one of us. Go and make disciples disciples, and we know from the book of Jonah, do it with a glad, joyful heart that shares my heart. I need to repent of not going enough. I need to repent of orienting my life more around myself than around the lost. I need to repent of thinking that salvation is somehow something I had something to do with and that I don't have an obligation to make it known to everyone who shares the need that I once had. But you know what? Jesus, when we repent, as we saw last week, He forgives, He relents, He accepts, He holds on to us. Jonah was never let go. God never let him go. The whole time God pursued him, and he was a rescuing God, and one day we will meet Jonah, and, and, and we we will say, thank you. If you wrote that book, thank you for writing it, because, because it helped me to see 
all the ways that I was like you. And help me to see, even more importantly, all the ways that, that God was gracious to me in my life. God has been so gracious to you, church. Undescribably gracious to you. Let's respond this morning in repentance and in rejoicing and in recommitting our lives to his heart's purpose of having compassion for the lost for his namesake in all the world. Let's stand and we will sing together as we close.